I'm Dan Eikenson. I am uh, director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato, and I welcome you to the Cato Institute. But before we get started, I uh, just want to let you know you are joined by thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people in cyberspace uh, viewing this event. So I want to let them know that if they want to weigh in and they're on Twitter, uh, they could use hashtag Cato Energy. And if they have any questions for us, we may or may not get to those questions. Uh, they can direct them to at Cato Trade uh, in Twitter. Uh, I've been doing trade policy for almost 14 years here at Cato, and I can attest to the sort of evolution, uh, the metamorphosis of trade policy. It's not no longer just about trade barriers. It's no longer just about border barriers uh, like uh, tariffs and quotas and export restrictions. It creeps into a variety of policy space areas. Uh, trade policy penetrates much more deeply into what was once sort of uh, the domestic purview of, of Congress uh, and the administration, uh, and, and vice versa. U.S. laws and regulations have an impact going the other direction on trade policy. So our, the, our, the folks in the Trade Policy Center at Cato focus on all sorts of things like intellectual property laws, uh, foreign investment, data privacy issues, OSHA rules, federal highway rules, product food and safety regulations. These things all uh, interact with trade policy. Uh, in fact, most major areas of public policy, I think, have trade dimensions and sometimes uh, very important ones. I think it makes perfect sense uh, as, as transnational supply chains have uh, proliferated, as cross-border investment has taken off in multiple directions uh, around the world, as globalization has evolved, what were once primarily domestic considerations, uh, uh, what were once issues of exclusive domestic jurisdiction, have become increasingly important uh, to the whole question of how do you compete in a global economy. U.S. energy policy certainly shares a large area of intersection with, with trade policy. Uh, energy is a raw material uh, required in the manufacture or provision of virtually every good and service that we consume. Uh, the energy supply chain is vast. It has numerous tributaries and numerous aqueducts, by which I mean that every firm operating in the energy space has upstream suppliers. It has downstream uh, customers. And that really means that the reverberations of U.S. energy policy decisions are felt uh, throughout the domestic and global economies. So that suggests that policymakers should tread lightly uh, so as not to create the kinds of unforeseen and unintended consequences that arise uh, in such a delicate ecosystem. So our policy should be smart uh, and it should be predictable. Now what we're here to discuss today is whether and how export restrictions imperil America's oil and gas bonanza. Of course, the oil and gas bonanza underway is attributable primarily to supply-side shocks uh, in the form of revolutionary new production and extraction techniques, speaking primarily of hydraulic fracturing or fracking, uh, horizontal drilling, and, and other techniques. Uh, according to uh, the Energy Information Administration, U.S. crude oil production will approach the 1970 all-time record of 9.6 million barrels per day by 2016, and it's expected to grow by an annual average of 800,000 barrels per day through 2016. Um, it also projects the U.S. will become a net natural gas exporter uh, in 2018. So this boom in domestic energy production uh, has raised calls for a fresh look at existing U.S. policies, specifically the set of export restrictions that have been in place on gas since 1938, uh, on oil since 1975. Uh, under the law dating back to 1938, natural gas exports must be authorized by the Department of Energy, uh, and, the, and the Department authorization will be granted 
uh, unless exportation will not be consistent with the public interest. Uh, exports to free trade agreement partners are generally deemed to be consistent uh, with the public interest, and the Department of Energy must uh, therefore grant license applications without modifications or delay. Um, there is, this is very relevant to the two major trade negotiations that are going on with the United States, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Trans-Atlantic uh, uh, Trade and Investment Partnership. Uh, our trade negotiating partners there are excited about the prospect of having access to lower priced natural gas. And as a result, there seems to be a movement here in the United States to sort of prevent that from happening. Uh, there are domestic manufacturers in the petrochemical sector in particular, I think, who want uh, to keep that natural gas all here for themselves. Likewise, oil, as, uh, uh, after the Arab oil embargo in 1975, a law was put in place that uh, restricts exports of oil. And basically, it's a discretionary export licensing system, which uh, is really a de facto ban on exports to all countries except for Canada. There's uh, been, I think, one or two licenses that were approved recently. That's about it. Um, so the supply chain implications here are important to consider. The, the domestic refiners are really in the catbird seat because there's little new refining capacity that has come online. U.S. refining capacity is better for um, heavier and sour grades of, of oil, whereas what's being produced here is the lighter and sweeter variety. Bringing new refining capacity online is difficult because of environmental considerations and environmental resistance. So exporting that oil is uh, really important if we are to benefit from this, this, this oil bonanza. Um, Scott Lincecum, one of our speakers, has in a recent op-ed said, U.S. producers have spent hundreds of millions of dollars building mini refineries in the Midwest and Gulf region to sort of circumvent uh, the current restrictions uh, and export a slightly processed, cheaper product, leaving another 1.7 billion of, of potential profit on the table. And he says, as Rube Goldbergian as this sounds, that's a good word. Thanks. <laughs> producers have few alternatives, given that U.S. oil consumption has collapsed in recent years and building new refinery capacity is virtually impossible. So creating, creating a domestic glut depresses prices in America, costing domestic natural gas producers an estimated $3 billion and oil producers some $10 billion annually, which means they have less money and less incentive uh, to reinvest in, in, in future production. And as Scott pointed out in that article, current uncertainty retards highly capital-intensive domestic energy investment, production, and hiring. Arguably, uh, the certainty of free markets in upstream feeder uh, feeder stock industries is as important as the rule of law uh, when it comes to attracting investment and maintaining a properly functioning supply chain. So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, we're going to start with, with Mark, Mark Perry, who's going to frame the issues by reviewing some of the history of uh, oil and gas production in the U.S. He's got some, some great slides uh, to, to show pricing data and, and uh, volume responses. Uh, he will then move from there to a discussion of some of the current issues regarding the export restrictions. Um, then after Mark, Scott is going to speak. Scott Lenskin will talk about some of the practical economic and policy problems associated with these export restrictions, followed by a discussion of some of the myths about the adverse consequences uh, of lifting the restrictions. He will also describe some possible reforms. Uh, and then finally, Jim Bacchus will speak about uh, the export restrictions in the context of U.S. World Trade Organization obligations. Jim has weighed in extensively. He wrote a great paper. Uh, which comes to the conclusion that these uh, restrictions likely violate uh, U.S. obligations under the WTO. Jim's also going to talk about uh, other aspects of this uh, policy matter, 
And he may even weigh in a little bit with uh, comments about those who are opposed to lifting the restrictions, maybe giving some voice to that, that side of the analysis, since we don't really have anybody here representing that. I just want to read just two, two paragraphs from the Center for American Progress. They put out a, a study requesting, uh, uh, suggesting that we don't lift the ban on oil export restrictions, just so that they're here, sort of. Uh, this paper uh, written by Dan Weiss says, over the past five years, the United States has experienced an astounding energy transformation. We are producing more oil and using less due to advances in drilling technologies and more efficient vehicles as required under the modern fuel economy standards developed by the Obama administration. The increase in domestic oil supply combined with a decline in demand has also led to a significant decrease in foreign oil imports. These changes make us less vulnerable to a sudden foreign oil supply disruption that could cause price spikes. Unfortunately, the oil industry would squander this newfound price stabilization and energy security by lifting the ban on crude oil exports. Doing so would enrich oil companies by enabling them to sell their oil at a higher world price. But it could increase domestic gasoline prices and reduce our energy security. President Barack Obama and Congress should oppose these efforts to allow the export of domestically produced oil. So I wanted just to give airing to that perspective. I think Jim may have a couple things more to add. So let me introduce our first speaker, uh, who's Mark Perry. Mark is a uh, full professor of economics at uh, the University <coughs> of Michigan Flint, uh, where he's taught undergraduate and graduate courses in economics and finance since uh, 1996, starting in the fall of 2009. Uh, Mark uh, has also held joint appointment as a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute here in Washington. Uh, Mark holds two degrees in economics, an MA and a PhD from, from George Mason. He also has an MBA in finance from the University of Minnesota. Uh, in addition to an active scholarly research agenda, uh, Mark enjoys writing op-eds for a general audience on uh, current economic issues, and his opinion pieces have appeared in basically all of the major newspapers that uh, you're familiar with. Um, uh, Mark is also very well known for being the creator and editor uh, of one of the nation's most popular economic blogs. It's called Carpe Diem. I'm sure you've been there. Uh, I find it very useful. I go there quite frequently. Uh, Mark has written on a daily basis since the fall of 2006 to share his thoughts, opinions, and expertise on economic issues with a strong emphasis on displaying economic data in a visually appealing way using graphs, charts, and tables. So uh, let me uh, ask you to help me welcome Mark to the podium. Thanks, Dan. The reason we're here today discussing ex export restrictions on oil and natural gas is because of America's amazing shale revolution, which has created the great American energy boom, which I have argued is the most important economic event in at least a generation, and maybe in a century or maybe in all of US history. The American shale revolution that started in around 2008 has been described as the energy equivalent of the Berlin Wall coming down and by someone else recently as being as important as the internet revolution. If you have any doubts about the, strengths, the strength of America's private sector or about America's competitiveness in the world economy or about whether or not there are deep pools of ingenuity, risk-taking, and entrepreneurship in America or about America's economic future, you need only look at the great American energy boom for hope about America. It's that important. And that's why we're here today discussing the restrictions on exporting some of America's new bonanza of oil and gas that we have today, thanks to the revolutionary drilling and extraction technologies that Dan mentioned that have unlocked oceans of previously inaccessible fossil fuels trapped in shale rock formations miles below the ground. 
these breakthrough technologies have taken us from an era of resource and energy scarcity and increasing dependence on foreign sources of energy to a new era of resource and energy abundance and a dramatic rise in America's energy self-sufficiency. And we're here today to discuss some of the restrictions on exporting oil and natural gas that were implemented in previous eras of energy scarcity that may no longer be relevant or valid today. So let me start our discussion today with a quick statistical review of America's energy production record to put the great shale revolution into perspective as we then discuss the export issue in further detail. And then I'll also make some economic arguments in favor of allowing exports, increased exports of crude oil and natural gas. First chart here is showing a combined production record of US natural gas and oil in a common unit of measurement, quadrillion BTUs. So we can kind of see oil and gas together using Department of Energy data. And combined US production of oil and gas in 2013 was just short of the record in 1971. And we're on track to reach new record highs this year and next year. And so we can kind of see here the, uh, how the shale revolution reversed a gradual uh, four-decade decline in natural gas and oil production in just a short six-year period. This is looking at our energy self-sufficiency, how that's turned around because of the shale revolution. This is looking at U.S. energy, total U.S. energy production as a share of total U.S. energy consumption from 1987 to 2013. And with data available right now through October, we're approaching 85% energy self-sufficiency, the highest since 1987, and as a direct consequence of shale, oil, and gas. This is looking at U.S. oil output. Dan touched on this briefly. This is looking at uh, monthly production going back to 1920. We peaked at over 10 million barrels per day in one month in 1970 or 71, and then uh, almost a four-year decade decline in oil production, and then because of the shale revolution, a very uh, impressive turnaround, remarkable turnaround, and now based on Energy Information Administration forecast, it looks like by December of next year, we'll be at the highest level ever for domestic crude oil production. Last year, we had the largest annual increase of a million barrels per day in U.S. oil production. It's the biggest annual increase since U.S. commercial oil production started back in 1859, and I would argue that this is the biggest economic story of 2013. This is our number one oil producing state, Texas, which as a separate country would be the ninth largest oil producing nation in the world. The remarkable shale revolution there, again, reversing several decades or multi-decade decline in crude oil. Texas now produces more than 36% of all U.S. oil and they're at the highest production level um, since the 19, early 1980s. We now have three supergiant elite oil fields in the United States out of only 10 ever worldwide to produce oil at a level of a million barrels per day at peak production. Uh, the Permian Basin, uh, centered near Midland, Texas, went over a million barrels in May of 2011. Eagle Ford shale formation in South Central Texas went over a million barrels per day in May of last year. And depending on how the production comes out in December and uh, January, it's looking like the Bakken oil fields will hit a million barrel per day in production um, either this month or, or last month. Switching to natural gas, we now have record high natural gas production in the U.S. at the end of 2013, a 28 percent increase since 2005 because of shale gas. 
And again, uh, an increase through the early 70s, a flattening for many decades, and now a complete kind of a turnaround because of shale gas production in the U.S. This is our number one gas region, the Marcellus region. This is kind of put in perspective how things have changed for natural gas production. In the Marcellus region, which covers Pennsylvania and, and West Virginia, uh, output has increased eight times in just four years, and it's doubled in just the le in less than the last two years. And this is uh, based on uh, pro projections from the Energy Information Administration through through February. Because of our newfound abundance of uh, natural gas, this is showing what's been happening to the monthly spot prices of uh, adjusted for inflation for natural gas. So a rising trend in the, in the 90s and in the early 2000s, and then once we started producing so much shale gas, we're back now to levels that we haven't seen in about 20 years in terms of uh, the real price of natural gas. And then here's kind of helps frame the issue of why there's a market now for exporting America's natural gas. This is looking at world natural gas prices as of November for liquefied natural gas. And so we're at about $3.20 in the U.S. And in Europe, they're three times higher. And then in uh, Asia and South America, they're five times higher. And so we've got gas that is selling in the U.S. for $3.20, whereas it's over $15 in many of uh, uh, foreign countries. This is looking at uh, U.S. exports of refined petroleum products, which have doubled since 2008. So because there aren't any restrictions on refined petroleum products like fuel oil and kerosene and jet fuel and other types of refined gasoline, our exports have a huge overseas market now. And so now we're producing or, or exporting more petroleum products that are refined than any time. And this has doubled in, uh, in the last five years. As, again, as a result of our you know, bonanza of shale oil and shale gas. Okay, so that kind of puts this uh, historic record into perspective. And now I'll make some uh, economic reasons to favor increased exports. Um, the Great American Energy Revolution has been called a free market triumph and happened because of a dedicated group of risk-taking petropreneurs, as they're sometimes called, who created the shale revolution without the help of government and without being part of any planned government energy policy. So to restrict energy exports would be in direct contradiction to the very market forces that created the bonanza of shale oil and shale gas that have made America, again, an energy superpower and put us in a position to be an exporter of oil and gas. Experience has clearly demonstrated that the free market is a much better allocator of commodities and natural resources than bureaucrats or politicians. As former Democratic Senator from Louisiana, Bennett Johnson, said in the Wall Street Journal last year, we should allow the free market to allocate the nation's newfound energy bounty. So from a free market and free trade perspective and for consistency, we should allow exports of oil and natural gas, just like we allow exports of many other natural resources, agricultural products, chemicals, metals, and finished petroleum products like fuel oil. We know from economic theory and empirical evidence that free trade always generates greater net benefits than restrictions on trade and protectionism. And if we want a richer, more prosperous America, we have to allow exports of oil and gas. An important point, I think, is that restricting exports won't make additional gas, won't necessarily make additional gas and oil available for Americans at low prices. Rather, export restrictions simply guarantee that much of America's newfound bonanza of oil and gas will simply stay in the ground. So we either produce additional supplies of gas and oil for the global market and create jobs, wealth, income, royalty payments, 
and prosperity for Americans, or we pass up that opportunity, leave the oil and gas in the ground, and live in a poor America. The objections to gas exports from U.S. chemical and manufacturing firms that Dan touched on, who use large quantities of natural gas, are based on pure self-interested rent-seeking, and it's an old protectionist argument that really can't be taken seriously. It's an attempt to use the government to restrict the ability of oil and gas firms from selling their products in the global marketplace at the same time that many large chemical firms export their large volumes of American-made products overseas. For example, last year, in 2013, chemicals were the second largest U.S. export category, and yet many chemical firms are trying to restrict the ability of U.S. energy firms to sell their products overseas. This is an important moral issue that needs to be considered in the debate. Uh, Rent-seeking firms trying to restrict exports of natural gas and oil is like lobbying the government to force your neighbor to sell you his house at a huge discount and preventing him from selling it at the market price to somebody else. And that's wrong, unethical, and immoral. Private energy companies have invested billions of dollars in exploration and drilling and are employing thousands of American workers and should have a right to sell their resources in the market of their choice to the highest bidder. Firms opposing exports act like they're somehow entitled to the resources of other American companies, even though they have invested nothing and employed no one themselves to, to extract those resources from miles below the ground, and that's objectionable. Restrictions on oil and gas exports are outdated and no longer make sense in our new era of energy abundance. We already export record levels of finished petroleum products, as I showed in the last slide. And the restrictions on oil and gas exports date back to prior eras of energy scarcity when political concerns about energy independence dominated U.S. energy policy. Restrictions on natural gas exports date back to the Natural Gas Act of 1938, as I think Dan mentioned, and then another 1949 Export Control Act. Restrictions on oil date back to some legislation in 1920. And then, of course, there was the Energy Policy and Conservation Act of 75 that was passed following, following the Arab oil embargo in 73 and, and banned crude oil exports. So an argument for lifting the export ban today is based on the fact that export restrictions were enacted in much different eras when resource and energy scarcity dominated the policies that were crafted in response to the real concerns in past periods about ensuring reliable energy supplies for America at times like in the mid-70s when our own production was declining and we were growing increasingly more dependent on foreign sources of oil and gas, often from unstable and unfriendly parts of the world. But America is now an energy superpower and we're already outproducing even Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia now for all petroleum products combined. So we're living in a new era of energy and resource abundance and we need to update our outdated restrictions on oil and gas exports. Finally, environmental concerns would support increased exports of natural gas because it generally substitutes for coal and electricity production and helps reduce greenhouse gases. In the U.S., the increased use of natural gas made a significant contribution to bringing CO2 emissions in the U.S. down to an 18-year low in 2012, with CO2 emissions from coal down to a 26-year low, and CO2 emissions on a per capita basis in 2012 were at a 40-year 48-year low, the lowest level since 1964. So the increased exports of U.S. natural gas will help reduce CO2 emissions globally. And if we want a cleaner world, we should support natural gas exports. In conclusion, the economic and environmental case for an expansion of natural gas and oil exports is very strong, in my opinion. And we should move in that direction, especially if we want a richer America and a cleaner world.
Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. And Mark, where, where can we find your best place to find your writings? Is it at AEI or is it Carpe Diem? Yeah, if you just do a search for the Carpe Diem blog, you'll find a link to my website. Yeah, that's, that's really, it's a good site. Okay, thank you. Our, our next speaker is uh, Scott Lincecum. Scott is an international trade attorney with extensive experience in trade litigation before the U.S. Department of Commerce, uh, the U.S. International Trade Commission, uh, the U.S. Court of International Trade, the European Commission, and the, the, the World Trade Organization's dispute settlement body. Uh, he's also advised corporate and sovereign clients on U.S. bilateral and regional trade agreements and U.S. trade policy, as well as WTO matters, including accessions, compliance, uh, and multilateral trade negotiations. Scott is also an adjunct scholar here at Cato. He is a former uh, uh, research assistant from many, many years ago. Scott and I have uh, written several papers together. Scott has written some on, uh, by, on his own, with his own byline by himself here at Cato. Scott's also a visiting lecturer uh, at Duke University where he teaches a course on US trade policy and politics. So uh, Scott has a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science uh, from the University of Virginia and a JD from the university's <coughs> law school. Please help me welcome Scott Lincecum. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, before I begin, uh, just a quick lawyerly disclaimer. Um, everything I say here today reflects my own views alone and does not nece necessarily reflect those of my firm. Um, with that out of the way, um, let me say it's really great to be here um, because this issue is something that uh, when I started kind of blogging on it in 2012, was kind of below the radar, and is now, it seems like almost every day, you can't pick up a newspaper, uh, uh, go online and see someone writing about uh, oil or gas exports. Um, and that's, it's great to see. It's really, um, it's nice to see this momentum going forward um, and uh, maybe possibly some reforms on the horizon, which um, I'll talk about. So. Um, briefly, what I'm going to do um, is go through some of the practical and economic problems. Mark hit on some of these already, so this will be uh, relatively brief. Um, I'll then go through a lot of the policy problems, and there are a lot of them, um, that are raised by American oil and gas restrictions. Um, then I'll, I'll hit on some common myths about lifting restrictions and then talk about reforms. So uh, practical and economic concerns. Uh, now, I'm not an economist, and although I like to pretend to be occasionally, um, having learned a lot from Mark's blog, um, but there are a lot of uh, practical and economic concerns raised by current US policies on oil and natural gas exports. Um, Mark hit on these again. Um, the, the first one is this market uncertainty, um, which deters investment, production, and employment. So if we actually want more oil and gas production, more jobs in those sectors and the sectors that support them, you would want to create a more transparent system, a more consistent system, which is not what we have. Because of this, producers are unwilling to invest uh, if they can't guarantee long-term returns, and business decisions are based on political whims rather than market forces. Um, this, if you are trying to invest billions of dollars in a, what is a very capital-intensive industry, it's kind of tough to do that if you don't know um, that you're going to be able to have a consistent uh, and reliable market at home and abroad. And of course, these export restrictions prevent that. 
There's also the economic loss. Uh, Dan hit on this briefly in his introduction, but we're talking about a staggering economic loss for a single industry. Uh, oil and gas producers in the United States lose billions of dollars on lost export sales. Um, they also, as Dan mentioned, have built, spent hundreds of millions of dollars building mini refineries. And all these do is slightly refine the product to, ex to circumvent the export ban. Um, not only does this cost a fortune uh, to build these uh, refi mini refineries, but producers have to actually sell at a discount from what they could get on global markets for the basic crude oil, thus resulting in even, even further losses. So the third issue is that prices collapse when captive supply outstrips demand. Um, <clears throat> we saw this in 2011 and to 2013 with natural gas where prices hit record lows and producers that were just humming along ended up having to divest or switch over to crude oil because it simply was not profitable or economic to keep producing at these levels. Uh, gas at one point hit $2 per MMBTU, um, which is just simply not an economic price. Uh, crude actually faces the same, if not in some ways, worse problems. So as Dan already kind of mentioned, we have limited refinery capacity. Um, <clears throat> and not only is it tough to build new refineries, it's tough to retrofit them so that they can uh, work with the type of oil that we're producing here in the United States, which is mainly light, sweet, crude. Um, the other issue is that some imports just won't ever be replaced. These are due to multinational investment, the types, as I mentioned, types of refineries we have. Um, and industry analysts warn that at some point, we're just not going to have any place to put any of this crude oil. Yes, we can go to Canada, but Canada has the same type of refinery issues. So at some point, producers will be left with a choice. Leave the crude in the ground or sell at a substantial discount. And we all know what that decision will be. We're just going to be leaving that oil in the ground. Um, and as I mentioned, we're hearing a lot more about this problem. It was uh, just a, about a half a year ago, it was said that this was going to occur, this problem's really going to occur in two to three years. Looks like that timeline has actually been shortened uh, significantly. So as a result of these practical and economic problems, we have less stable, less predictable, and less efficient domestic and global energy markets, causing serious economic loss in terms of jobs and wealth um, and the rest. So just quickly, you can actually see, this is a cool chart. It shows how US prices for natural gas were tracking uh, global prices and then all of a sudden collapsed. Um, and they've stayed around that level. Um, again, uh, not only uh, discouraging production, but potentially leaving a lot of money on the table for producers. Um, the other is that crude as well. So here we have uh, West Texas Intermediate Crude, a domestic crude benchmark, um, and the global benchmark Brent Crude. Again, we see this divergent. And all of it, again, happens right around the time of the shale revolution. So this then gets me to the policy concerns. So uh, Jim is going to talk a, a lot about WTO issues. So I'm just going to go over those briefly. Uh, the, the crude oil and natural gas restrictions uh, raise a host of legal problems. 
The first is that um, they contradict longstanding US positions before the World Trade Organization uh, related to export restrictions and even export licensing. So here the United States is arguing before the dispute settlement body that discretionary or um, discretionary licensing systems or licensing systems that take a long time to get an approval violate WTO rules. And then here they are implementing one of those policies. Um, second, it contradicts longstanding US positions on subsidies and countervailing duties. So these are any subsidy measures uh, applied on imports. Pretty much every country in the world has a CVD law. Uh, and the United States has for a long time treated export restrictions on upstream inputs like oil and gas as a uh, unfair subsidy. And they've applied duties uh, on products used that are made from these um, uh, inputs. Uh, they applied remedial duties on them. Um, and again, uh, they're doing much the same thing here at home. Um, another legal problem is in a similar vein. Um, the oil and gas restrictions potentially expose downstream US exporters, so producers of refined products, petrochemicals, aluminum, and other products, to countervailing duties or higher anti-dumping duties in foreign markets. So all of these producers that think they're making money hand over fist by getting dirt cheap energy here at home only to dominate global export markets could end up on, uh, on the receiving end of remedial duties based solely on those restrictions. Um, in fact, there's actually several disputes at the WTO right now over um, uh, the artificially increasing anti-dumping duties based on uh, raw materials export restrictions. So it's, a, it's a, a pretty big problem that some US exporters could face. Um, the process also raises concerns under US law, uh, not to get into the weeds too much, but the Export Administration Act, which uh, governs the crude oil ban, um, is, uh, was expired in 1984 and has only been renewed based on uh, emergency presidential decree for the last 30 years. Um, that raises some legal issues about whether it remains valid. Um, there also are issues related to the delays and order of our natural gas uh, license approvals. So those are the legal issues. Um, the political issues are um, just as problematic. Um, first, obviously, the policy undermines the president's national export initiative, which seeks to expand exports. Um, it also contradicts support for other energy exports, like renewables and nuclear fuel. Um, it contradicts longstanding US policy, as I mentioned, regarding countervailing duties and unfair export restraints and subsidies. It undermines multilateral efforts to rein in these export restrictions. In other words, it's very tough for the United States to tell a country, you know, you really, really need to stop with those export restrictions when they're doing much the same at home. It's a case of very bad parenting. Um, also raises the specter of cronyism, um, pitting some consuming industries against producers and some other consumers. And finally, as Mark already mentioned, it undermines environmental policies. Not only with respect to the proliferation of natural gas, which as we know is a much cleaner fuel than, than others, uh, but also for renewables. If prices go up a bit for natural gas, then you actually have renewable energy being more price competitive. And this is a good thing, so the administration claims. So it's actively supporting a policy that inhibits that. So now 
onto the harm caused by uh, higher oil and gas prices, or sorry, myths about lifting restrictions. And one of those myths, probably the most prevalent, is that this is going to really hurt consumers by causing higher oil and gas prices. And so we have to keep all this at home. And this was really one of the central arguments uh, of the Center for American Progress analysis that Dan mentioned. Well, this um, is, is incorrect for a lot of reasons. For gas, um, yes, prices would rise a bit, but nowhere near the levels that would be harmful for the domestic economy. This is for two reasons. First is that we're not just going to start exporting all of this natural gas. It costs about seven bucks per MMBTU <laughs> to condense and ship the product. So even if gas prices were to rise a bit, which they're scheduled to do, uh, there would still be a very large gap between U.S. and global prices. The second is that U.S. manufacturers would still remain globally competitive. The latest uh, forecasts are that gas would go up to about five and a half bucks per MMBTU, which is still really, really cheap globally. So for domestic crude oil prices, um, it most likely would not lead to higher gas prices for the American consumer, but actually lower gasoline prices. Um, yes, domestic prices would tend to equalize with international prices. So WTI would approach Brent, but this would actually lower, likely lower gasoline prices for a few reasons. One is that it would increase total global supply, thereby lowering the Brent benchmark, and gas prices are actually linked to Brent, not West Texas Intermediate Crude. And second, as Mark mentioned, uh, there are no limits on refined products. So it's not like all this gasoline is staying here at home. Refiners are getting a huge windfall and then exporting it at global prices. So in fact, right now, only a few US refiners are actually benefiting from cheap oil and uh, unlimited refined products exports. Um, the Rhodium Group did a great analysis of this, and they showed that uh, Rocky Mountain and Midwest refiners were getting a huge discount, 21, uh, 16 to 21% discount on oil um, compared to East Coast refiners. But they also found that gasoline prices weren't affected, again, demonstrating that only refiners are getting this advantage, that American gasoline consumers, you and me, are not seeing an advantage at the pump, and that exporting the product won't hurt us, most likely will help. Here's a nice chart of, you can see crude oil is just cruising along the bottom, refined products going through the roof. Clearly only one side is benefiting this right now. Another myth is that this would somehow sacrifice American energy independence. Well, ask any economist worth his salt, and they'll tell you that total energy independence is uh, unnecessary, irrational, and impossible. Um, one of those reasons is something I already mentioned. Regardless of uh, export restrictions and what we do with them, the U.S. will continue to import fossil fuels due to refinery design and multinational investment. Um, that just simply is not going to change. So the idea that we're going to become, uh, have energy autarky someday is just um, nonsensical. The other issue, and the real issue, is that energy, energy independence should not be the goal, that the goal really should be energy stability. And this energy stability comes from domestic production, imports, and yes, exports, creating a more transparent and a more consistent system 
creates a lot more stability in global energy markets. What we have right now is political uh, politicians and bureaucrats deciding whether to permit exports on a whim. And when you're now the world's largest energy producer, or one of them, that type of policy has serious global ramifications. Um, finally, and that brings me to the national security myth. Um, we hear this as well, that we need to keep this energy at home for national security. Well, first, we have a far more stable and diversified energy market than in the 70s when the crude oil ban came about. We have natural gas, we have renewables, there's coal, and so forth. So the idea that we are dependent on a couple fossil fuel, types of fossil fuels just simply isn't the case. Second, as we've discussed, these restrictions actually undermine investment and production. So if you're trying to, if you think that oil production is important for the security of the United States, you actually have a policy that is inhibiting or discouraging that production and investment. Next is that exports could actually help US allies and overall global energy stability. We have some of our allies, allies are totally reliant on uh, certain uh, nations that they don't want to be reliant on. And US exports could help that. In fact, I saw something recently that said that the uh, sanction, multilateral sanctions on Iran, whether you like them or not, were really only effective because of the United States uh, boom in oil and gas and refined <coughs> products. And then finally, of course, is that the US could still restrict exports uh, in an emergency situation, but that's clearly not the case right now. Um, what's interesting is that in the last year, and likely because of all of these reasons I've, I've given you, um, we've seen a, uh, an emerging consensus in favor of exports, at least among policy wonks and academics. Uh, I'm not going to list all the names here, but you can see that there's a whole boatload of institutions who support these policies, and then only a couple guys who don't. Um, and it's rare that you get a bipartisan, almost uniform consensus in support of a certain policy, but we have that here. Um, so how can we export more? Well, there's two ways. Uh, one is systemic changes, and, one, and the other is using the existing system. Um, unfortunately, none of these changes um, appear likely or, or uh, are without a downside. Um, first, though, we'll go through the sy no systemic changes. Um, for, for natural gas, um, we could just increase applications to FTA countries. That's easy and automatic. The Department of Energy could expedite its public interest determinations for non-FTA countries. Um, both of these it could do without any legislative action, not even stroke of a pen. Um, for crude oil, we could, assume, we could increase exports to Canada, but as I mentioned, at some point, Canada's going to run out of room too. Um, we could have a uh, DOC through the Bureau of Industry and Security determination related to uh, another exception, there are a lot of exceptions. Uh, they are pretty narrow, but we can try some exceptions. Um, or we could have a presidential determination that increased oil exports are in the national interest. Now, as I indicated, all of these have problems. Uh, the first is that they would not resolve the systemic issues that are endemic um, in our systems right now. So yes, we might have some more exports, but we, have, we, don't, we lack the transparency and consistency that is ideal. Moreover, 
Um, it wouldn't resolve a lot of the legal problems that I mentioned. Um, we also th have the fact that these exceptions and determinations are difficult. Uh, there is a lot of litigation, and it's not just, you don't just file an application and, and get your exports, as the Department of Energy uh, has demonstrated over the last several years with gas export applications. And then finally, the biggest one is, will the administration actually do it? Um, all indications are no. Uh, and I think one of the best indications is that the Center for American Progress has full-throated opposition. And of course, John Podesta, their former head, is now in the White House advising on energy policy. Uh, it's not tough to put those dots together. So the systemic changes, uh, there are many, but again, they have problems. The first is that we could have new regulations for crude oil. Uh, the administration has the authority to unilaterally update its regulations through formal notice and comment. Um, we also could have legislative action. Now, in my opinion, the, the best approach is a complete overhaul with all energy exports subject to transparent automatic licensing with, of course, a clear national security exception. This would obviate any and all concerns that I've mentioned. Um, there has been some recent movement, but it's been piecemeal until today. Uh, according to the Washington Post at 1 o'clock today, Senator Ted Cruz is going to announce a big energy policy, and one of, those, uh, one of the planks of that policy will be broad reform to our crude oil and natural gas licensing systems. That's a great thing to hear, because before today, it didn't exist. So whatever, regardless of what you think about Ted Cruz, for those of us who want more stable energy policy and a good energy exports policy, that's a really, really good thing. The other way, which is far messier, is legal challenges. As I mentioned already, there are issues under US law related to not only the systems themselves, but the implementation of these systems. So we could see exporters, producers, or trade associations challenge the delay or denial of export licenses in order to, uh, or the order of approval in which those licenses are granted, or they could challenge the regulations themselves. As I mentioned, the EAA expired in 84 and really probably shouldn't be in force, and then the regulations under, that are promulgated pursuant to the EAA, the EAR, um, might not be lawful either. This is another uh, area that's ripe for litigation. Um, and then there is the possibility of a WTO dispute brought by another member government. If you're not involved in the TPP negotiations, like maybe China, or you're not involved in the EU-US FTA negotiations, maybe you're getting sick of not having uh, access to uh, American energy that, as Jim will discuss, probably violates WTO rules. The problems with this are, unfortunately, pretty big. First is that it's highly controversial. Uh, on the political front, politicians don't want to be seen, especially in election year, doing anything that might have affected uh, gasoline prices. So uh, you're not seeing a lot of support outside of guys that don't care like Ted Cruz. God bless him. Uh, there's also controversy for WTO members. We're talking about sovereign energy policies um, and national security issues. Um, Thus, that a WTO challenge, and maybe uh, Jim has a different 
opinion um, seems unlikely. And as I mentioned, the political will uh, appears lacking even among supporters. So in conclusion, yes, reform is desperately needed. The systems are broken, raise a host of problems. There's an emerging consensus in support of reform. Um, political momentum exists, but um, it really hasn't been what we need. Um, and unfortunately, that should likely continue uh, through the end of the year. So with that, thanks. Thank you, Scott. Thanks very much, Scott. Scott, uh, an excellent analyst of these issues. I should mention his, his, his blog uh, site is lincecum.blogspot.com. Uh, he writes about a lot of these issues, and uh, he vents there, too. So I would... Very cathartic. Yes. <laughs> you, should, you should visit. Um, well, uh, our next speaker has his uh, fingerprints all over U.S. trade policy and global trade policy. Uh, Jim, Jim Bacchus is currently uh, chair of Greenberg Traurig's uh, global practice, and he's a leader in the firm's overall worldwide practice. Uh, his emphasis is on international business, including trade, investment, finance, and sustainable growth. Uh, Jim offers legal and strategic advice to worldwide clients, uh, based on his unique experience with the many issues relating to the global rules for trade and commerce uh, of the World Trade Organization. Uh, I think Jim's clients are getting a valuable perspective because uh, for eight years, Jim served as chairman of the appellate body of the WTO. That's the final court of appeal, the sort of the Supreme Court of, of global trade rules in Geneva. Um, the seven judges of the appellate body hear final appeals in, in international trade uh, disputes which involve 95% uh, of world commerce uh, conducted by more than 5 billion people uh, in the 160 countries and other customs territories that are members uh, of the WTO. Uh, Jim was a founding member of, this, uh, uh, of the appellate body, was twice appointed by consensus uh, to the WTO, uh, of consensus of the members of the WTO, uh, twice elected chairman by his colleagues, and during his eight years and two terms of service, he was the only American and the only North American uh, on the appellate body. Uh, Jim was uh, the only member of the appellate body who served uh, on the tribunal during all of the 60 appeals it had and it, it heard in its first eight years uh, of, of, the new, uh, of the new WTO. Interestingly, his final decision uh, for the WTO was, uh, was on the, the U.S. Steel case from the early 2000s, a uh, case brought against the United States by Europe and Japan and China, Brazil, and others. Um, which found that the U.S. safeguards were violating uh, the, uh, its WTO commitments. But following the decision, um, uh, the New York Times concluded that this case was the rough equivalent of Marbury versus Madison, which is the 1803 decision that uh, established the Supreme Court as the final arbiter of the Constitution, uh, able to force Congress and the executive branch to comply with its rulings. According to the American lawyer, which wrote uh, at around that same time, James Bacchus, as much as anyone, can lay claim to being the John Marshall of the World Trade Organization. Uh, in addition to his service at the WTO, uh, Jim Bacchus has also been a member of Congress. Uh, he served from 1991 to 1995, representing the 15th District of Florida. Uh, while in Congress, uh, Jim was a leader in bipartisan efforts to advance international trade issues. He was a supporter of presidential fast-track negotiating authority, how topical, uh, a leading supporter of the NAFTA, a vocal advocate of extending most favored nation treatment for China, uh, a champion of the Caribbean Basin Initiative, and one of six original co-sponsors of the implementing legislation for the Uruguay Round trade agreements that created the, the WTO. 
From 1974 to 1976, Jim served as a senior aide to uh, Florida Governor Reuben Askew. And from 79 to 1981, he served as a special assistant uh, while Askew was US trade representative in the executive office of the president during the Carter administration. Um, Jim is also the author of a book called Trade and Freedom, which was published in London in 2004 by Cameron May. Uh, it's, uh, I've read it, it's an excellent book. It's really, uh, for a technical book, it has a lot of really interesting prose. Uh, so it's the kind of thing you can read on the beach, actually. Uh, he writes and speaks frequently on a wide uh, range of economic and other international issues and publications and on platforms worldwide. We are especially lucky to have him here today. Please help me welcome Jim Bacchus. Thank you, Dan, and, and thank you all. It's good to be back at uh, Cato. I admire so much of all that's done here, and especially Cato's uh, independent point of view, which is much needed uh, in this city and this country. Um, like S Scott, I want to uh, hasten to say that uh, I'm here today in my personal capacity, and uh, none of the 1,700 other uh, lawyers uh, with Greenberg Troig are in any way to blame for what I'm about to say. <laughs> um, uh, I, also, I, I don't really want to repeat anything that's been said. Mark and Scott have, have given us uh, an exhaustive overview of the economics and the policy uh, uh, aspects and implications of this issue. Um, I'll simply say that uh, I am a free trader, and I believe that, as a general rule, uh, we should engage in free trade in energy. And that's my policy view. Um, but I'm not here today uh, to uh, offer a policy uh, view. Um, I, I think I'm here today because of uh, my experience in dealing with international laws that relates to trade. Um, and it's perhaps uh, because uh, my approach is a bit different from that of some others uh, you might hear in Washington. Uh, uh, so often in Washington, um, the question of our international treaty obligations is uh, an afterthought, if indeed it's a thought at all. Um, whereas for me, given the uh, nearly decade I, I spent uh, trying to plumb the depths of the covered agreements of the WTO treaty, uh, I tend to see all measures uh, uh, adopted and applied by the United States and all other WTO members through the prism of their WTO obligations. And uh, that, I think, is why I'm here today. Given the time available, I'll be suggestive, not definitive. There will be no footnotes. Uh, <laughs> if you want more detail uh, later, uh, let me know. Uh, uh, those 1,700 other lawyers at Greenberg Troig would certainly want me to say that. Uh, but uh, let me begin by trying to place some of this uh, in context, following on a bit of what uh, has already been said about our WTO obligations. First of all, it's important to understand, yes, we do have obligations under the WTO treaty. We have embraced them. We have signed the agreement. We're bound by them. We remain a sovereign country. We can do as we choose. But if we don't comply with these treaty obligations, 
uh, we stand to lose some of the benefits, potentially, of uh, being a part of the WTO. Uh, and it can be very, very expensive if we don't comply with uh, rulings uh, against us in WTO dispute settlement. In the steel safeguard case, uh, the United States of America did not comply because I was persuasive in my judgment, although I hope that uh, we were. Uh, they complied because uh, the United States stood to uh, lose several billion dollars annually in previously granted concessions in other areas of trade if the United States did not comply. This is the source of both the strength and the controversy of WTO dispute settlement because it is enforceable, because it is in the nature of hard law. Uh, well, it just can't be ignored. So we're at risk if we ignore it. We can pass whatever laws uh, we choose, we can have whatever policies we wish, but we may be called to court in Geneva to answer for them. My next uh, point of context would be to note that an increasing concern of all members of the WTO, including especially the United States of America, has been the proliferation of export restrictions worldwide. Uh, a WTO report uh, recently uh, noted that more than one-third of all WTO members have imposed restrictions on exports recently, many times in uh, uh, food and agricultural areas, but also increasingly uh, with respect to other commodities. Historically, over the past half a century or so, WTO disputes have largely been about restrictions on imports. Uh, but uh, increasingly, they are about restrictions on exports uh, because of the increasing uh, competition for natural resources in the world economy. Uh, and uh, this is likely to continue. Uh, the United States' view on a bipartisan basis in recent years and dating back decades has been that the export restrictions are not a good idea and uh, should be opposed. And indeed, the United States has taken the position against China in two current cases in WTO dispute settlement that export restrictions uh, imposed by the Chinese uh, are in violation of WTO rules. The United States won the case in raw materials. Uh, the United States continues to pursue the uh, case in uh, rare earths. Uh, these are arguments the United States is making and arguments on which the United States has thus far prevailed in WTO dispute settlement. And yet at the same time, uh, we are imposing restrictions on our own exports. Now, I would be the first to say that the WTO treaty does not require that any WTO member be consistent in its <laughs> trade policy. I would also uh, suggest that there is no single member of the WTO who is consistent in its trade policy, but is the largest trading nation in the world, and therefore the one with the largest stake in the effectiveness of world trade rules, the United States of America perhaps has the largest interest in making certain that to the extent we can be, we are consistent. There's also a bit of context that uh, I would add here, and that is uh, it somehow is necessary to point out that energy products are covered by the WTO treaty. I talk to people in the energy industry and they seem uh, to go beyond the notion of an afterthought. They seem to have tacitly 
uh, internalized uh, the assumption that for some reason WTO rules don't apply to them. I've thought about this, and uh, I think it's because of a point I made a moment ago, which is that over the course of the past uh, half century, uh, our disputes have been about import restrictions, and few people have wanted to restrict imports uh, of oil or natural gas. Uh, uh, they want them when they want them, and they don't want to restrict them. Uh, and it's only now that we're focusing on export restrictions that it's dawning on anyone that these rules might apply uh, to oil or natural gas or coal or other energy products. Indeed, they do. Indeed, they do. Uh, these uh, products are traded products to which WTO rules apply. Uh, here, uh, I will be suggestive as opposed to definitive, uh, but uh, one of the agreements in the WTO treaty that is uh, at issue here is the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, Article 11 of the GATT. I had the misfortune uh, while I was in the Congress of actually having read the GATT. Uh, the Article 11 of the GATT imposes uh, uh, a prohibition on quantitative restrictions of exports. Uh, there's an exception in the language uh, due to a compromise at the Havana Conference in 1947 that says you can have export taxes. But we don't do export taxes in the United States, so that's not an issue for us. Uh, we are bound by this uh, general prohibition on quantitative restrictions on exports. Uh, there are uh, some uh, exceptions, uh, but... Um, those exceptions don't necessarily excuse uh, what's going on. For example, you can have temporary uh, restrictions where there are critical shortages. There are no critical shortages here uh, in terms of oil and natural gas, and the uh, restrictions we have on crude oil exports in our law are not temporary. Uh, by terms of the law, they are uh, permanent. So that exception uh, doesn't apply. Uh, there are also some defenses that are potentially available under Article 20 of the GATT uh, relating to uh, measures that are uh, imposed uh, because they're necessary to health or because they relate to the conservation of uh, exhaustible natural resources. Potentially, these kinds of defenses could be available, but only if these measures are of a certain kind and if they are applied in a certain way. Uh, just to mention uh, a couple of examples, uh, if you're going to uh, have a, a benefit of an environmental defense, you have to have an environmental measure. And all of the discussion that we've heard uh, about uh, whether we should or should not lift restrictions on exports uh, of these energy products has been about the effect uh, on the competitiveness of U.S. industry. It hasn't been about the environment. Uh, and then, even if these measures are of a certain uh, nature, they have to be applied in a way that does not uh, result in arbitrary or unjustifiable discrimination between countries uh, where the same conditions prevail or an undisguised uh, or a disguised restriction on international trade. Here I'm quoting the chapeau, as they say, in Geneva of Article 20. And uh, query, as uh, we would say in the law classes, whether we would pass that particular test for that defense. 
There are also certain other questions that arise uh, in my mind, given the prism through which I see these particular measures, that uh, are rarely uh, discussed, if at all, in the public debate. We've heard today about the exceptions in the uh, natural gas uh, uh, licensing uh, rules for uh, countries with whom we have free trade agreements. Well, um, are these particular exceptions legal under the WTO? I don't know. I haven't delved into the depths of these, but uh, any uh, free trade agreement uh, with uh, one uh, member of the WTO is uh, by definition uh, uh, a decision to discriminate in trade against another uh, or many more uh, members of the WTO. How is that legal given the WTO's general rule of non-discrimination? It's legal only if you have a free trade agreement. What is a free trade agreement? Under Article 24, a free trade agreement applies uh, to substantially all the trade among the parties to that agreement. What is substantially all of the trade? One of my great accomplishments in nearly a decade as a jurist in Geneva is that I was able to get out of Geneva alive without having to answer that question. But some country that's not a privy or a party to one of these special arrangements may raise their hand in the WTO and ask that question, and under WTO rules, it will then have to be answered. <clears throat> One other issue I'll uh, mention is uh, the issue of subsidies on which Scott touched. Uh, this is a fascinating to topic. Uh, in addition to the GATT, another of the WTO agreements uh, uh, that is part of the WTO treaty is the WTO agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures. It's there more than any other reason because the United States worked decades to make certain it was there to define a subsidy and make certain that subsidies were disciplined so as not to distort free trade in products worldwide. And uh, we have been diligent in trying to insist on the uh, uh, fair and thorough uh, implementation uh, of the subsidies agreement. The question is that by restricting exports so as to reduce domestic prices of uh, oil or natural gas is the United States granting a subsidy to the manufacturing firms that are the downstream domestic users of natural gas. As has already been mentioned, it has been the U.S. position in a number of cases that uh, uh, this type of arrangement is a subsidy. Uh, and it is one that uh, needs, needs either to be withdrawn uh, or uh, it is one that uh, can be countered through countervailing duties. Uh, it is possible that someone could bring a case against the United States making these same arguments <coughs> that we have made against others and prevail against us and uh, have the effect of raising the prices of our exports. I would make only one general observation before stepping down. I'll try to answer your questions uh, to the extent that you have them in whatever time we have left. But um, the general observation I would like to make would be about uh, what I see as the illusion of self-sufficiency. Uh, this is not a new notion. Scott mentioned the notion of autarky. 
we have that work because the Greeks invented it, and they invented it because of the notion of self-sufficiency that they have. But I would hope we had grown beyond that. Uh, we, if not, we need to go back and read Adam Smith and David Ricardo and a few others. Um, the notion that we can be self-sufficient uh, is an illusion. No one country is ever going to be self-sufficient in everything. There's always going to be something that we will want from someone else. Furthermore, um, any one of us uh, as an individual should be comparable to a country in that do we really want to be self-sufficient in all that we do? Do I want to uh, make my own watch? Do I want to uh, draw my own water? Do I want to make my own pen? Uh, division of labor is at the heart of our complex society and our complex world. International trade is international only because it crosses lines that are artificial. Uh, they, those lines exist only because we believe that they do. Uh, an economist would tell us, indeed Adam Smith told us, that the division of labor is limited only by the extent of the marketplace. Increasingly, the marketplace is worldwide. And what we should be seeking, in my view, is economic uh, and energy uh, security and not independence, because uh, the notion of independence in energy especially is an illusion and imposing restrictions on exports as a matter of policy is, in my view, short-sighted and self-defeating economic nationalism. It is also, in many respects, illegal under international law. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jim. I, uh, I like when you sound like a Cato trade policy person. That's, uh, that's, you're hearing it from, from some, somebody who doesn't work here. Um, we have, let's say, 15, 15 minutes or so for questions. Uh, there's somebody with a microphone. Uh, please raise your hand. I'll call on you when that person gives you the microphone. Identify yourself, your affiliation, and get to the question. Yeah, right here. Ken. Hey, uh, Ken Monahan with Bloomberg Government, and a question for Congressman Bacchus and also Scott on the likelihood that a WTO case could be filed against the U.S., um, and second, maybe which country might actually file that case. Um, Europe is one maybe candidate, but they're negotiating with the U.S. on, on TTIP. Maybe there's um, uh, some of a hesitance on the U.S. part to raise such a high-profile case. Um, just wondering what other country might actually take that step and who would be willing to go there, so to speak. China clearly would be at a risk given its um, export restrictions and the cases against them on raw materials. Just wondering who that might be and, and how likely it would be that you could see that happening. Thanks. Well, well keep in mind uh, what I said about no country being um, bound by consistency. Uh, so um, uh, it's possible that the Chinese, having lost these cases, uh, relating to their own export restrictions, might choose uh, to uh, uh, use those rulings as precedents to bring a case of their own. <clears throat> uh, I don't advise the Chinese, and I'm not advocating this, uh, but that's conceivable. Uh, I, I don't know which particular country uh, might take this initiative. 
certainly would be one that feels left out uh, of current arrangements. So it wouldn't be one that's privy to a free trade agreement with us. Uh, it wouldn't be one that um, uh, looks to be in one of these uh, uh, arrangements currently being negotiated, uh, such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, but um, in my view, this question of uh, uh, the meaning of Article 24 of the GATT will um, eventually be asked and answered in WTO dispute settlement. Um, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a good example. What is it? Is it a free trade agreement? Uh, if so, what makes it a free trade agreement? Uh, if it's not a free trade agreement, then on what basis is it legal for these a dozen members of the WTO to agree on uh, a pattern of discrimination against uh, other members of the WTO? Three times on three continents in the past six weeks, I have had... Uh, uh, people in the audience representing countries not involved in the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, stand and ask what they could do to keep from being discriminated uh, against in this uh, arrangement. Um, and uh, I think that if and when a WTO case were brought on the um, oil or natural gas issue, it would uh, come from a similar aggrieved party. And one last point, uh, to which I alluded uh, in passing uh, on the podium. Um, if uh, any member of the WTO chooses to uh, uh, bring a case in WTO dispute settlement, they cannot be stopped. Uh, under the dispute settlement understanding, they have only decide to decide on their own whether it is quote, unquote, fruitful for them to bring that case. That's it. There's no executive committee that says we'd rather this case not be brought. And then under the rules, uh, if uh, the case goes through the panel and gets all the way uh, to uh, my successors on the appellate body, and if the legal issue uh, is raised directly on appeal under the WTO rules, the appellate body shall address that issue. It must rule. I remember when I was on the appellate body, some of my former colleagues in the Congress would give speeches that would say, why uh, doesn't the appellate body simply refuse to rule on this case? Why, why, do, why don't they use their discretion uh, uh, like the Supreme Court does not to uh, uh, rule? And the answer is they don't have that discretion. It, it, it doesn't exist for the appellate body. So once the trigger is pulled in dispute settlement, if the, if the country bringing the complaint wants to pursue it to the end, they will get an answer. And the world may not like the answer uh, that we get. Scott, you want to? Yeah, I just add a, a couple of things. Um, I think that it's it's obviously quite difficult, or if not impossible, to predict this. Um, I, you know, China is your one of your obvious choices. Uh, but you know, the others, you look at a few factors. Are they energy users? Um, not net energy exporters are dependent on energy. Uh, second is, are they left out, as Jim mentioned? You know, are they not in the TPP, TTIP, or another FTA? Um, and third, perhaps independently, are they looking to make a statement of some sort against United States protectionism, export policy, or whatever? Um, I scribbled down a few having absolutely no prior knowledge. Um, India, perhaps, Argentina, 
perhaps place like Cuba or Ecuador, other places that are just looking to, again, make, make statements. Um, you know, the Indian one is quite interesting. India right now is litigating uh, United States countervailing duties at the WTO. Uh, and one of the issues is export restraints. <laughs> uh, in fact, DOC has imposed countervailing duties on Indian goods due to Indian export restraints on steel. So maybe that's an option. Uh, I, again, have no knowledge of that. But the issue, there's two overriding issues that I kind of alluded to. One is uh, the national security issue and the sovereignty issue. You know, energy is, it's not different under the, under the rules, but it is a bit different for a lot of nations. So does a country really want to go down this road? Uh, the second issue um, is, do they want to get into any issues under GATT Article 21, um, which makes exceptions for national security? Nobody's ever done that. So when you get into national security issues, there's a clear aversion to go down that road. But the other thing that's kind of a counter, not well, countervailing point is that um, you don't really have to go to a dispute. Maybe someone's just looking to make a statement by filing a request for consultations. Um, maybe uh, they want to get into the TPP, and they could use a little leverage that way. You know, um, requests for consultations and WTO disputes don't always need to be finished for them to have an impact, for them to make headlines, draw attention, and achieve diplomatic ends. Dan. Dan Pearson, the Stiefel Center here at the Cato Institute. A question for Professor Perry. Have you had an opportunity to do any analysis of how much trade flows might change in the event that we actually did achieve complete liberalization of the energy market? The, the reason for asking is it's not clear to me that, that you'd have enormous volumes of product being moved around the world. Rather, you'd, you'd get enough to get price convergence so that there was no longer an economic incentive to move the stuff around. But do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I haven't really done any, you know, in-depth analysis, but, uh, and I think maybe Scott touched on this, is that it would seem like any um, increased exports of natural gas would happen very gradually because of the huge investment that it takes. And so I would say that, um, you know, the impact on the U.S. market would be minimal and wouldn't really adversely affect the U.S. economy so much, um, partly just because the licenses are being approved so slowly so I think it would happen very gradually. It would get phased in over the next five or ten years, and and um, would have some, you know, increase. There'd be some increase in exports of natural gas. For oil, I'm not quite sure about that. But um, again, I think the the effects would be minimal in terms of on our pricing and on our economy, and would overall, I think, be generally positive and have net gains. Some of the industry folks I've spoken to about this don't see exports as uh, the path towards amazing wealth and prosperity. They see it more as a hedge uh, to protect against losses in the U.S. market. So if, if and this is, it's pretty standard economics literature, if prices here collapse, they want to be able to ensure that they're not going to lose money hand over fist on their investments. Um, the price to transport these products around the world, uh, particularly for gas, where you have to, you know, condense it and there are all these terminals involved, uh, really precludes some sort of flood of American crude and gas outside of the United States and major problems. And I, I think that there have been a couple analyses that have actually shown uh, that, you know, price impacts are minimal, uh, one of the reasons being that it, we're not going to just suddenly uh, export all of our energy. 
Uh, right here in the second row. Uh, thank you for your presentation. My name is Ken Levinson with KLC Strategies. It's a question I just don't know the answer to, and I'm maybe hoping one of you can educate me. But if we already have in law that FTA partners can receive, uh, it sounded like a sort of automatic deemed license, have we granted any? We've had FTAs since the late 80s, yep. um, including with one of the countries that has the high gas prices, South Korea. So I'm just curious if we've done this, and once we have TTIP and TPP and more than half the world economy is brought into those agreements, what is the the real effect of the export ban in that case because it's a commodity? So I don't even know how the product is deemed to go from one from our ports to their market. So I don't just explain to me the, the, the overall economics and the practicalities of this once we achieve these agreements. Sure. Um, you want to start? Yeah. So uh, for the important thing to remember is it's really two separate systems. So gas, natural gas can go to FTA partners. Crude oil is restricted to Canada alone. Um, the gas and oil is supposed to be for domestic use only. So you can't just get a bunch of crude. The Canadians can't get a bunch of U.S. crude and then ship it out. Um, so that still provides a limit um, even if we have more FTA partners or recipients. Um, you uh, do raise a, a point, though. You know, as we get more FTA partners, um, will the gas issue become uh, less important? And the answer is uh, yes, the more recipients you have. The issue, of course, is that even TPP, which is a huge agreement, um, excludes a lot of major energy consumers. Um, it is not 100% clear if we're going to have unlimited access to natural gas uh, in these agreements. Some people are, are pushing against that. Um, and uh, you, you also have, again, the crude oil issue. Um, to my knowledge, I haven't heard of crude being included in, in this. Uh, maybe the Europeans, because they have a specific negotiating objective on energy. Have, have we liberalized with South Korea? Um, it's getting there. Yeah. yeah. It well not, not in effect. Well, yet. no, it's in a no, so the agreement's now in effect, yeah. so by law they can go. I don't know if, if we've had shipments, but I'm I wouldn't doubt it at this point. But again, you know, it's really expensive to to get the gas there. So it's uh, it wouldn't be something that would happen overnight. Anybody else want to weigh in on that question? Jim, anybody? Well, it is uh one minute before one, so I think we should wrap up here. Um you're all invited to join us for uh, sandwiches upstairs after this. Thank you for coming, braving the weather to get here. Um, and please help me uh, uh, thank the speakers for coming today, too. Appreciate it. <laughs>